Praise the Lord and welcome to New Life. We are so glad that you can join us by our virtual campus. And I don't know where you are at today. You should have your docks pulled in by now, so I don't think you're out on your boat. But uh, we are so glad that you've joined us this morning from wherever you are at, be it Afghanistan, one person, Kenya, several, um, the Philippines, um, Canada, hey folks up in, um, you Maple Leafs, um, and even folks from Florida and Georgia. Can you imagine? Far away Florida. And so we have all these folks that we continue doing this stuff, and then folks here um, in the tri-state area, and boy, you should... You're gonna, if you live in the tri-state area right here, you would have wanted to come because the food. I'm getting hungry. That's, boy, oh boy. Uh, we got a guest speaker today, and he's going to preach as long as he wants because we're eating today. But I'll tell you what, um, people are getting hungry. And so um, you would have wished you had came today just for the food. But um, I am so happy. Um, I'll tell you what, pathway. And in the Church of God, I would call him Bishop Allen Hathaway. Used to be our district overseer, you know, before I assumed the role. And 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 so here today. And you, you, why do I call? Because he was my best man at my wedding. So he's still the best man. Right? And then he made us really, really happy because he brought his lovely, beautiful bride, Terry, with him. <laughs> and, and then we're all, a lot of us are excited because he used to pastor the church here. Right? And so we're so excited that we could have Alan and Terry here with us. And we are going to be so blessed today. I know that the message he's going to bring. He asked me, do you need me to preach on certain things? I said, no, what the Holy Spirit tells you to. That's what I told him. Do you have a theme? Don't worry about the theme. Just whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do. All of a sudden, I'm starting to sound like Jeff Foxworthy, doesn't it? And <laughs> let the Spirit guide, because whatever the Lord wants us to hear is what we need today, right? Yeah, I could have had him preach on a lot of subjects. Giving more. Now nah, you do a pretty good job on that. Um, reaching people in the neighborhood. Yeah, I could have had him do that, but you know. But that's that's where our heart is now. So I didn't really need him to come and start talking to about where our heart is. We need to hear something that God wants us to hear, that will help us where our heart is. Amen. So I am excited that Alan's going to come right now, so I can get. Yeah, I'm such a preacher. I just keep going on and on and on and on. That, yeah, I know. You, I saw somebody say, yeah, that's true. Uh, anyway, Alan, will you get up here so I can get down? And, um, and you just have all liberty. Besides, now, his returning pastor, I trust him so much that I'm going to let him be pastor today. <laughs> that will not happen. You have a pastor that you need to be very thankful for. Um, before I start my, my message, um, 
David and I have been friends for many, many years, and I have a hard time calling him Pastor David because we're friends. But uh, he is one of the most delightful men I know, uh, just period. Um, I gauge pastors, and one of the things I do is train pastors. But uh, I gauge a minister or a pastor by how he talks about his congregation. And I've met an awful lot of pastors who don't talk very nice about their congregation. In fact, many times I'm thinking, why in the world are you pastoring? Because you don't like the people you're pastoring. And uh, that is not true of your pastor. When he speaks of you, he speaks of people he loves, cares about, and respects and honors. So if you can, I'd like for you to stand and give him and Lorraine hand. They are, they are a blessing to you. <laughs> you are blessed. Here's a church. It is a privilege to see a couple of people that I remember from when I pastored here, but it's been a long time ago. And uh, well, <laughs> we all get older, don't we? <laughs> We all look a little older and feel a little older. Um, I thought a lot about uh, what I wanted to talk to you about today. And I thought I'd like to talk to you about the Great Commission, but in a way that you probably haven't thought about it before. I want to talk to you about the mission of our church. What is the reason that God put us here? What is his purpose for us in this moment and in this place and in this time? This particular text actually took place, they believe, right here. This is the summit of Mount, uh, and I want to say this right, Eremos. Uh, Eremos is actually called also the Mount of Beatitudes. It's located actually less than four miles from Capernaum, ancient Capernaum, and you can look in the background at the Sea of Galilee and actually see what was Capernaum. That's where Capernaum actually was. Uh, this mountain is actually 75 feet under sea level. Under the sea level. So if it were on the, on the coast, the Mediterranean coast, it would actually be uh, 75 feet underwater. So uh, it's quite an interesting place. It is also a large kind of a dish area where people can speak and be heard. And so it was a place that Jesus chose very often for a place evidently to speak with his disciples. This is where the Sermon on the Mount took place. This is probably where the calling of the twelve disciples or the twelve apostles took place. This is also the place where Matthew chapter 28 took place. Because most of you are familiar that Jesus, when he was resurrected, spent 40 days meeting with his disciples, either in groups or individually, 
And he met with them in quite a few different locations. He met in Jerusalem with them, but he also told them, go to Galilee and I will meet you there. And then it also tells us that he told them here in this chapter to go to the mountain I tell you about. He was talking about this one. So this is where Jesus had directed them. We often uh, think about lots of things that we want to happen in our lives. I'd like for you to, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be looking at verses 16 uh, through 20. Uh, We'll be looking at four different thoughts out of these passages, so let's take a look at them. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I want you to notice that word doubted. It means to waver in your opinion. That's what literally the word means. So I want you to take notice of that particular word. Let's continue with verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always unto the end of the age." I want you to notice several things in this passage, and I've bolded several words in the text that I want you to pay attention to, but I want you to think first of all about the question of worshiping in the midst of doubt. The second thing I want you to think about is what does it mean to have the authority and the strength to change things? And then I want you to think about what it means to make disciples. What does it mean to make a disciple? And then I want to talk to you about how important it it is to have the presence of Christ. So those are the things I want to talk to you about in these next few moments. I want you to think about them and think about what God has called us to as a church here. Father, I pray now that you will anoint our ears to hear, our minds to perceive, and our hearts to understand what you would say to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you will anoint me, that I will speak those words that your people need to hear this day. I pray that you will bless us together as we study your word in Jesus' name. We seek mountaintop experiences in our Christian walk, don't we? We want those mountaintop experiences. We want those things that change us, where our emotions run high. Surprisingly, it is also at that time that we are the most vulnerable to doubt and struggle in our lives. We are at those moments people that deeply struggle. One of the men in the Bible that catches my attention every time I read is the man Elijah. We are very excited when we read chapter 18 of 1 Kings, aren't we? 
Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? Big experience. Fire comes down from God. It just explosive type of experience. And then there's the rain and Elijah runs, outruns the chariot of Ahab to the city of Jezreel. Wow, what an exciting event. Exciting and moving and dramatic. But like all such experiences, those things are also based on our hormones, aren't they? Because the reason Elijah outran Ahab's chariot was because he was pumped up on adrenaline. That's the reality of it, isn't it? So very often that mountaintop experience also involves a lot of that in our lives. What happens next in the story is what strikes me the most. Elijah has gotten back to the city of Jezreel. He has had this tremendous victory. He has overcome Ahab. He has overcome the prophets of Baal. He has overcome everybody. But the one person who knows how to trip him up. The one person that really throws a monkey wrench in his life. And that's Jezebel. What happens in our lives is that those mountaintop experiences, we come down from them, the adrenaline begins to wear away, doesn't it? And then we are vulnerable. And Elijah was vulnerable. And all it took was a letter from Jezebel, and he panicked and ran. We find him in the desert of Beersheba, laying underneath of a bush. And what he is saying to God is, I just want to die. Why don't you kill me? I, I, I just, I want to die. I'm the only guy left that really loves you, Lord. I just want to die. I don't really have a purpose anymore. And God graciously feeds him, comforts him, cares for him. It says the angel of the Lord, which was probably Christ Himself, came and ministered to him. And then He said, I want you to go to Horeb. Horeb is Mount Sinai. And He sends him to Horeb. And so Elijah goes to Horeb. And there he is and he gets inside this cave and he, he is wanting to hear from God. And God says to him, Elijah, why are you here? And he says, well, you know God. I'm the only guy left. I'm the only guy that really loves you. I'm the only guy that really cares about you. All these other wicked people are out there. Everything is, is terrible. 
I'm the only guy that really loves you and I really don't have a purpose anymore. Now I am interpreting some of what he's saying. And so he hears the mountain rumbling. He hears the storms. He hears all of that. And God asks him three times this question. Why are you here? And in the storm, in the earthquake, in the lightning, in the thunder, it says God is not in any of that. Isn't that interesting? He comes back inside the cave and in a still small voice it says God asks him again, Why are you here? The real question is, Elijah, why did you panic? Why did you panic in your life? What brought you to this moment? That is really the question that Jesus was dealing with with his disciples, the eleven, when they came and met him. Now, it wasn't just probably the 11. It was probably more than the 11. But the 11 is Matthew's concern. He wants us to know that the 11 were there. Because it's important to what he wants to say to us. He is talking to us about the importance of our Christian faith being a real world experience. Christian faith is a real world experience. I like this particular uh, rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. It's by a man by the name of Harold Coppin. It's very interesting because I like it because around Jesus are people of different walks of life. You have teenagers. You have a mother comforting her child. In the background, if you look carefully, there is a woman who probably is, well, a lady of the evening. You have a guy that's just come in from the field from his work. And I really like that. Because that's who we are. We come and sit at His feet to learn of Him. Who He is and what He desires of us. It does not mean that we are not without our doubts. Right? And what I like in that passage where it says, some came and they doubted. It says that some of His eleven apostles even doubted. You thought about that? They were struggling with this. They were confused. And that's what doubt is. It's we're confused about what's happening. And that's okay. So long as that doubt does not remain unresolved. Does that mean that if it's resolved that we never have a problem? We never have a difficulty? We never fully we come to understand everything? No. No, it doesn't mean that. It means rather that we come to trust the one who does. 
And that's where worship comes in. Remember? It says that even though they doubted, they did what? They worshipped. And that is where this doubt ends for us. Now, Jesus takes them to the mountain again. The mountain where it all started, right? The mountain where the Sermon on the Mount was preached to them. Where He laid down the principles of His kingdom. The mountain where He called the twelve to Him and said, You are My apostles. I have called you to Myself. You are the ones I have called. They would become the central core of His disciples. They would be the one who a few days later, possibly a week or so later, He would lead out to the Mount of Olives beside Jerusalem and be lifted up from them into heaven and promise them in His going that He would send the Holy Spirit to them. So those are the things that we see in that. Going back to Elijah in his cave. Elijah has come to this point and God says, Elijah, the truth of the matter is, I have an awful lot of people that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. I have a lot of people that have purpose still. But I've got one guy that's panicked. And I'm not done with you yet. I've got three tasks for you. Those tasks would take another 15 years. But those were his tasks for Elijah. Sometimes we think that when we doubt, when we struggle with our doubts, that it ends our ability to be the man or the woman God wants us to be. And that's not true. Our doubt does not reflect on God's power or ability or His provision, but on our own insecurities. The second thing I want to talk to you about is the authority and our future. Often we pass over the implications in verse 19, don't we? We want to get ahead to the part about going out and making disciples. But if we miss verse 19, we miss a very important part of what Jesus is saying. If we miss verse 18, we miss an important part of what Jesus is saying to us. We live on the back side of these events, don't we? So we look back on it and say, oh yeah, that's what he meant. But if you'd been standing there on that mountainside that day, you would have been on the front side of those events. And you're going, what in the world is he talking about? Jesus had many times claimed he had authority. And you went, oh, yeah, he's got authority. He, you know, he casts out demons. He, he, uh, you know, he heals people. Yeah, he's got authority. But that's not what Jesus was getting at. They had walked with this man for three years or more. And so this was a brand new thing. 
There are actually two Greek words that are used to mean power or can be translated as power and authority in the New Testament. One of them means uh, it's exousia, and the other is dynamis or dunamis. Uh, either way, it can be pronounced either way. Both are used extensively in the New Testament and throughout Scripture. Sometimes they are actually used even as synonyms, meaning you can interchange them. But they do have a difference in emphasis, and this is important to catch. Exousia means that I have the authority or the power within me, and I have the right to use that power. Okay, that's exousia. Dunamis is actually the exercise of that power. I use my power. And so, very often we translate the first one, exousia, as authority. And we translate the other as power. Because it's the force that you have in the world. In verse 18, Jesus says something unique. He says, all authority has been given. That is a statement of everything has now come to completion. I have within me all the authority. Now why could he say that? Because he had died and been resurrected. Within him he had all power and all authority. He had conquered the devil. He had conquered the grave. And he had conquered death. Those things that we all fear. He has complete authority. So when you understand that about what Jesus is saying on this mountainside, it is that the victory is complete in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. So why do we have authority? Because we are built on Him and the history of the Christian faith that has gone before us. That is all a part of our lives. So to have authority in the future, some things we're told uh, at the ascension that Jesus stayed with his disciples in Jerusalem and there were a tight core of about 100 to 120 of them there were a tight core of disciples around Jesus and they were in Jerusalem with him those last few days before he ascended and Jesus takes them out 
to the Mount of Olives and tells them, wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with the authority I have. The Holy Spirit would clothe them with that authority and that power. They asked him, well, Lord, if you have that authority, are you going to just establish the kingdom right now? And Jesus said, no. No, that's for the future. But I am going to give you the authority and the power in the present to minister for me. To be the people I need you to be in this hour. Paul would tell us in 2 Corinthians that we are his ambassadors. We live in this dark world, but we carry within us the light of the message of who Jesus Christ is. We serve a Lord who has full authority over all things. Therefore, we do not fear in the present or in the future. Right? We do not fear because we have the authority of Christ. The Great Commission must have seemed really very strange to the ears of the 12 or 11 apostles at that time. Jewish people had always viewed themselves as the salvation. Uh, it was a Jewish thing to be saved. You know, it was a Jewish thing. You know, you kept the law, you did those kind of things, you were saved. It was a difficult way of looking at the world. Jesus upended everything. He said, I want you to go out and make disciples in all the world. Well, does that mean that we have to make them Jewish? <laughs> no. No, that's not what I said. I said to make disciples. I was struck by that word disciple. Do you know that that is a word that was not used by the Jewish people very much in the first century? The word that is in Greek isn't used in the Old Testament. It's not translated at all. None of the words in the Old Testament are translated with that word. It's not used when they translate it 200 years before Christ, what's called the Septuagint. They never used this word in the entirety of the Old Testament in the translation. And yet Jesus, from very early in his ministry, and we find it in Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 6, Jesus used this Greek term. He used it because it had a specific meaning in the Greek culture. A very different meaning than it had within the Hebrew culture. In the Hebrew culture, they understood that their salvation was based on the revelation of God. 
not on the modeling themselves after a master. Okay? See the difference? God had revealed that we are the chosen people. So, you know, yeah, we understand we should be like, like God, but we can't be. He's so far up there and we're so far down here. But Jesus said, I want you to be my disciples. That word was very unique and very special. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells us exactly what he meant by that word. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? An interesting quote. The word mathetio in the Greek language literally means to form your mind after. In other words, direct your thinking around another person's thought process. And that's what literally the word disciple means. Now we get our English word disciple from the word discipline, don't we? But the truth of the matter is that's not what the Greek word means. Okay? Uh, that's the closest way we can, we can understand it. It literally means to model yourself after. To model yourself after what? After Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple, to literally model ourselves after him. In Acts chapter 11, it tells about an interesting thing that takes place. I'd like for us to look at verse 26, but I would encourage you to read verses 19 through 26. And when he, meaning Barnabas, had found him, meaning Paul, he brought him to Antioch. So it was there that the whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples, recognize the word disciples again, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Isn't that kind of neat? They were first called Christians at Antioch. The picture you see up there is a church of St. Peter. It's located in, in what was a ancient Antioch. Uh, it is a cave church, and it may well have been the place where the Christian church originally met in Antioch. We don't know. Uh, we know that it was a church in the 3rd century, which means the 200s. And so it's, it's been around a long time. It is interesting that in Antioch in Syria, under the direction of Barnabas and Paul, that the new Gentile believers took the nickname Christians. Christians a, the word Christian means to be like Christ. Cool? That's what our, word, that's what our term means for us, to be like 
like Christ. It meant that we would take upon ourselves the thought processes, the behavior, and the character of Jesus. It meant that we would be a disciple that follows Christ in the practices of faith. That accepts the teachings of our faith. And observes the commandments of the faith. Trinitarian baptism was a practice of the early church. And is identified in it identified a person as a Christian. Now we have what we call practices or rites or rituals of the Christian faith. The two most important are baptism and communion, right? Both of them are ways in which we identify with Jesus. When we are baptized, we are saying to everyone in the whole world, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. When we share around the table and take the communion, we are saying to one another, I am committed to Christ. He is at work in me. He is at work making me a disciple of Himself. Those are important. But you can do the rituals and not be a disciple. Right? Right? A lot of people are. A lot of people do. Rituals do not make you a disciple. Teaching is central to our discipleship. Right? Paul and Barnabas would go to another Antioch, which there were a lot of, a lot of towns named Antioch, believe it or not, in their world. But he went there and he taught with Barnabas in a synagogue. And they asked him to teach and he taught Christ. The word to teach means to indicate not only the, the method of communicating the message, but also indicates the message itself. In fact, sometimes that word is translated doctrine. Well, that's a terrible word. No, it isn't. It means that which is taught about Christ. And it is central to our faith. Our faith, if we only have rituals, if we only have emotion, if we only have those things, and we do not have a central doctrinal core to what we believe, who is Jesus? Then our whole process is hollowed out and empty. Because it has no meaning beyond that. If we have separated our faith 
from scriptural and ethical and practical truth, we really don't have any faith left. Central to the teachings of Christ are two commandments. Does anybody know those two commandments? Can you state them? You should know them if you're Christian. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the central commands of the Christian faith. They are central to who we are as Christians. It is what took Christianity from a group of 120 to the largest religious group in the world. There's no other group that is as large as Christianity. Even with all the problems we see in it, we are still the largest faith group in the world. And it's because we love one another. Right? That's what John tells us. We love one another. We are family. Whether you live in Afghanistan or you live in Canada, I still wonder about the Canadians, but or if you live in Mexico, Venezuela, in Africa, if you are a Christian, you are my brother or you are my sister. Right? And it does not matter whether we can speak the same language or have the same color or even think about the world in the same way. Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That is a revolutionary concept. It changes everything for us. So, if we are to fulfill the commission of Christ, we must not just get people saved, or get them connected, or get them to live right, or get them to the river to be baptized. We instead need to make disciples who begin to live like Christians. Like Antioch. Jesus is with us. The word that begins the second phrase of verse 20 is a Greek word, and it means, Behold! It is an interjection. It's used for emphasis. And what he is essentially saying to us and to his disciples is, Pay attention to the next thing I say, because everything else I've just said depends on this. That makes sense to you? Everything else he said depends on what he is going to say in the next moment. It is essential if we are to deal with the doubts that we struggle with. 
It is essential if we are to affirm Jesus' authority in our lives. It is essential if we are to keep the commandment to make disciples. And what is it that he says? In fact, it's so important that Matthew just stops his gospel there. Do you ever notice that? It's the last sentence of his gospel. Behold, I am with you even until the end of the age. Wow. That is the message that Jesus is telling us that that is the reason you and I are where we are at and why this church is here. Because Jesus is. Jesus is here. We are charged with being accountable as members of this body. Jesus, through the power of His Holy Spirit, tells us that He is present whenever we are having problems and that we should be accountable and that He has instructed the leadership to examine things in the body because of His presence in our midst. And we are to align, make sure there is an alignment with God's will and God's purpose. And in 1 Corinthians 14, we'll give you a lot more information about that, as will 1 John. If you read all of 1 John, it's all about accountability in the faith. So take time to read those and think about them. Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 18 says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And right after that he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ in us. It is the presence of Christ at work in each and every one of us. He promised that He would send His Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in our walk of faith. The Holy Spirit is the presence and the Spirit of truth. The guarantee of salvation. The helper and the guide who allows us as Christians to walk with confidence in the world. And He is the endowment or the clothing of authority. Isn't that neat? Aren't you glad you're a Christian? And aren't you glad you're Pentecostal? Because it means that we have that endowment of authority in this world. In Daniel... And I'm closing right here. In Daniel chapter 3 is one of the most powerful stories in the Bible and it captured the heart of the early Christian church. In, jo in Daniel chapter 3 you have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar has decided he is the most important person in the world. In fact, he's bigger than God himself. 
And he says, I'm going to build this statue 50 feet high and it's going to be covered in gold and everybody is going to worship it when they hear the music. Right? But there were three guys that wouldn't. And they stood up and said, no, we will not worship this God. We will not worship this man who thinks he's God. And so they're hauled before King Nebuchadnezzar. And he tells them, if you do not worship this image of me, I will throw you into the fiery furnace. And it was probably a brick kiln where they were making bricks. He said, this is where you go. And listen to what they say to him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we don't even, think, we don't even have to think about it. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. In other words, we may die, but no matter what happens, God will deliver us. And I like that. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Heat up the furnace, boys. And later, when he looks into the furnace after they have been thrown into the furnace, he notices not three, but four. And one of them looks like the Son of God. Early Christians who were going through persecution in the early centuries of the Christian faith in the tombs painted frescoes of the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. And they were saying with that that the message that they gave to Nebuchadnezzar is the very same message. And we can say that message because we know that standing with us in the midst of this is Christ. He is present with us in this circumstance. As we walk through this world, we know that Jesus is with us. And we know that He is greater than anything we face in this world. And that is why we are here. That is why you and I are called to this moment at this time in history. And that is why this church is called to this community. That's why you're called. God called you here. So what is your mission? To worship Christ in the midst of your doubts.
to make disciples who identify with Jesus, who know the faith, both the teachings and the practice, who follow the two commandments of our Christian faith, and to trust Jesus in every circumstance because he's here. And he is here. Right? He's here. Let's pray. If you'd like to stand, you're welcome to, but if you don't, that's fine too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church because this church is here to fulfill your commission. So God, I ask you that your anointing will come upon them. That you will clothe them with your authority and your power. That God, as they go forth into this community, people will say, there goes a Christian. There goes a little Christ. And God, I ask you that you will fill their congregation with a sense of worship and joy in their doubts. And then God, I ask you to fill this building with people who desire to become disciples. Thank you for Pastor David and Lorraine. Thank you for their service and their ministry here. Pour out your blessings on them and use them mightily for you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and for His glory and honor, now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Pastor David. That was good. And we have all the notes on the computer. <laughs> that was good. And I got to say, the, you guys did a good job in the booth following along. So good job. I'm going to let those at home, or wherever you leave us in just a moment, but I just want to remind you, New Life is located at 1021 South Center Street. 1021 South Center Street, I said again, 1021 South Center Street in Wapiton, North Dakota. Now I won't get phone calls from Georgia. Where are you guys located? Oh, that's too far. So, um, that is where we're located. We would love to have you come join with us. Sundays start at 9 o'clock for Sunday school, 10 o'clock for church. This Wednesday... Before I let you go, I need to put this commercial in there. It starts our third week of our prophetic summit. Uh, we just got done having our guest speaker, Jonathan Kahn, was here for two weeks. And what a message he gave to us. I've never seen him um, preach like that ever. Um, this week, Doris's favorite preacher is going to be with us, um, Perry Stone. And um, 
he's going to be with us this Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. And so um, come, uh, we'll um, pray, we'll worship, and then um, Perry will come and bring the message, and um, you will be blessed. We've been having a great time with the Prophetic Summit. We're, that's going to carry us into the new year. And um, we're doing it this way because we couldn't afford to have, have them here for whole week, all the speakers we have, Mark Biltz, um, Perry Stone, Jonathan Kahn, um, <clears throat> Lance Wall now, and I can't think, uh, uh, Bill Cloud. And so um, those are all our speakers for our summit. And so you, you would love it, and we are not putting it out. You have to come here to be part of that. And so um, I don't... Um, Perry Stone helped put this together for us, and he did not give me permission to put this out online. So um, we won't do that. <laughs> so you have to come. And we had some visitors come who just loved it, and they said they're coming back. And so um, I encourage you to come. If you live in the tri-state area, South Dakota, it's really easy to get here from there. At Minnesota, and of course North Dakota, we'd love to have you come and be part of what's happening here at New Life. Well, I'm going to let you go. And I'm so glad. I hope it. Do me a favor. We did this last time. Um, it was a lot of fun. Will you just in the comments say where you're watching from? That was a lot of fun to see some of you where you were commenting from. And so uh, let's do, let's have a roll call. Just comment where um, you have seen us today. Hey, God bless you. I will see you next time.